All right, so if you haven't been here, we're in week five of our current series called Equip. And if you're in it's week five, you're not missing anything, I promise, because we're going to review. Because I like to review some things sometimes when it's important. So, um, you know, what it looks like in this is, is we've been dissecting Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6 and 11 through 16, and what it looks like to be an effective and influential church in our culture. Because one thing I know is one thing that's kind of driven me to this series is I've looked at our culture and I've looked at the church and I haven't seen much outreach and I haven't seen much influence. I've seen a lot of getting together and high fives and, and amens, but I haven't seen a lot of outreach and I haven't seen a lot of disciple making and I haven't seen a lot of effectiveness from the church that I see in Acts as I read it. And the heart behind this series is for our body. That's you guys and that's me and that's us together as a family would have our eyes awakened. Right, we, would become, we, would become, we would be awakened to God's will for the church and where you fit in. I'm talking, yes, you and me, individuals where we fit into that mold. Because the model for the church is never, ever, ever about a pastor coming on a stage once a week to preach a sermon. That's not what the church is supposed to be centered around. But it's supposed to be the whole body working together, moving and functioning in its giftings. And that's been placed inside of you from, from your spiritual birth. When the moment you became saved, God put spiritual gifts inside of you that were there before that. But he, and he illuminated them and he brought them out. And you're supposed to be walking in those things together. And what it looks like is the whole body is supposed to be functioning together. And everyone's doing its part. You ever had, you ever had a toe injury before? It's hard to walk. But you don't think about a toe being an important part of the body, do you? Let that thing get stumped on a stair one time and see what happens. I'm telling you, every part is important to the body to be seeing it move forward into action. And my heart is that we would understand what it looks like in the context of the church to see God's glory exalted throughout the earth because of what you're giving to the body of Christ. You're giving your heart and your soul and your, your energy to see the kingdom come here like it is in heaven. First Peter 2, it tells us, if you write that down, you can go look at it later. It talks, about, it talks about us being a spiritual house. We're being built up into a spiritual house to, to make spiritual sacrifices to our Lord. And it says we're, be, we're being built upon the cornerstone. That's a construction term. I don't have time to explain it, but it's basically what sets the whole entire building straight. And so we're built on Christ, and we're, we're, we're the building blocks of the church. And right now, I don't see the church acting like building blocks of the church. I see them stand, standing back and just waiting to see the church being built, spectators to the build. My heart is that we would get into the game, and we would be the blocks that Jesus is putting in place. We would allow him to pick us up, put us in place, and we would do the things that he's called us to do. We've been called living stones that were being built, being built up into the spiritual house, as, as we talked about a second ago. In week one, week one, we said that the church that, that Jesus came to set up is the church that is committed to unity and to maturity. So the church that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16, what he said, he says, the, he, he, talked, he, said, he said, Peter says, on, on this foundation, I'm going to build my church. And he was talking about Peter's declaration of Jesus being the Lord, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And he's going to build his church on top of that statement, and the gates of hell could not come against it. And what he means by that, and what I see in that, the, what, what he's talking about is the church that's growing in unity, and it's focused on Christ, and is growing in maturity, growing up in their faith. And it's not about the church being led by a staff that does all the ministry work and spends their careers changing diapers and handing out spiritual bottles all the time, enabling people to stay exactly where they are, to be politically correct, or to not hurt anyone's feelings, or to keep their job because Jesus loves you, right? And so my heart is that we would understand that it's more than that, man. The church that in Matthew 16 is referring to is led by leaders who are raising up leaders, who are raising up leaders and leaders and leaders until the whole church is full of leaders, man. That's what it's about, is the whole church being leaders here so you can be leaders out there. Because if you're timid in here, you're going to be timid out there. And if you're not bold in here, 
You're not going to be bold out there. And so what I want you to see is that that is talking about leaders being raised up into maturity, being built up into power, into, into looking like Christ. And as we, as we dive back into this, this uh, verse in Ephesians 4, you can go ahead and turn there if you want. Ephesians 4, this is just the diving board for the rest of our lives to follow Jesus. This is not the end game. This is just the beginning. As we read this, this is the starting point. This is the, this is the starting line where we're going. And so let's, let's turn here, uh, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll skip over to verse 11 through 16. And we're going to read this together, and then we'll jump back into some stuff. It says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of you, as all of us in this room, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So let's move on to verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So we're unified around the knowledge of God and, of the, and in faith. And to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Guys, that is a, an important phrase. Our goal is to, be, to become mature and unified, attaining to the, that means reaching out and grabbing the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so I want you to just think rhetorically for a second. Has that been your church experience? that you've come into a place, discipleship, Sunday school, small groups, church, and you feel like we have reached the fullness of Christ. Listen, that's our goal is to reach out to him. And we can't do that. We'll, we'll get there in a minute. Sorry. We're going to be, we're keeping moving. Sorry, my bad. I get, I'm, 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 okay. Yep. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Be careful what you watch on TV. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So from day one of this series, the two main themes have been maturity and unity. Unity in the body and maturity in the body. And the reason why is because the church today has been largely immature in the faith and not unified around Christ. We've talked about it multiple times. There's so many denominations that I can't keep up with who's right and who's wrong anymore. Thousands of denominations, thousands of beliefs, thousands of things to think about and look at. And we're then largely are, are becoming skewed from what this says. And it's so important that we understand that I can't tell you, man, how many times that I've heard statements in the church as we're talking about maturity and, and unity, I can't tell you how many times I've heard statements like this in the body. It says, I, I follow Jesus and I love Jesus, but I don't think it's important to be an active member of the church all the time. I hear people say, I follow Jesus, I love Jesus, but I don't make disciples because I don't know enough where to start and I don't have time. I hear stuff like, I follow Jesus and I love Jesus, but I don't give regularly to the church for kingdom work to be done because fill in the blank. I don't trust the church. I don't trust God. I don't trust man. Fill in the blank. Another one is, I, I follow Jesus and I love Jesus, but I don't share Christ with people because God puts these people in my life, but it feels awkward and I feel stupid. Right? Are we, are we tracking here? 
I hear things like, I follow Jesus and I love Jesus, and I know I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't do that or I shouldn't look at that or I shouldn't take that or drink that or do this or that. But thank God he loves me anyway and has grace. Right? And so I want to be clear this morning, really clear. I, I try my best because I know I'm kind of like, I want to be clear this morning as we continue this discussion that, thing, that, that, that are things that, that we all struggle with in our flesh. We all in this room have a flesh. Your pastor, everybody else in this room has a flesh and we struggle. Amen? Okay, yeah, I, I do. I struggle. But we can't say we love Jesus and we can't say we follow Jesus and not do what he commands. We can't. I just want to be real this morning. We can't say, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, hey, I'm a Christian, but, and not follow and do what he says. We cannot say, I love Jesus and I follow Jesus and not love the things that Jesus loves and care about the things that Jesus cares about. I can't go to sleep at night if I know that Jesus is concerned about the unreached people groups across the world when I should be going or I should be giving, or I should be sponsoring or supporting or loving or somehow doing whatever I can with whatever gift God has given me. And I think a lot of people, listen, don't get me wrong when I say this stuff, because I think a lot of people have really good motives when it comes to following Jesus. I think people really, really, really want with all of their heart to love Jesus. I think they desire to love him and they desire to follow him, but I also think they love their life and their comfort more. And it's just what it is. And I think that they love their, their comfort zones and their possessions and their, their relationships and their, their things that keep them safe and secure more. Can, can we be real at this this morning? Is this okay? Okay, okay. So, and this is where, listen, this is why the rich young ruler went away sad. He came up to Jesus and he was like, I follow all the commandments, bro. Like, I got them all. I got them all down. I, 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 I give, I serve, I go, I, 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 you know, I, I'm doing this at church, I'm doing that at church, I helped build this church, I went on that mission trip, I did all this stuff. And Jesus comes to him because his heart was all wrong. His heart was all in the wrong place. He says, see all you have and follow me. And then he's like, wait a minute, time out. And he went away sad. His heart was too attached to this world to obey a God he said he loved and followed. Are you tracking with this? So, and this is why, guys, and I'm reading Ephesians 4, and I'm looking at our church. I'm reading Ephesians 4, and I'm looking at the American church. I'm reading Ephesians 4, and I get confused. And I'll be honest with you, some cynicism is starting to rise, has started to rise up in me. I'm like, what are we doing? I'm reading this, and I'm like, what are we doing? And we'll even come in here, and we'll be like, yep, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, that's right, that's right. And then we'll leave, and we'll never talk about it again. And I'm like, listen, I, th- my mind is blown by my lack of commitment to the Lord. And my mind is blown when I read stuff like this. And my flesh wants to go out and, and please itself. And I'm trying to get myself and us as a body wakened up to this because this is why the church in America, is, is, its growth has is, is been limited. You know, we have a lot of beautiful buildings and a lot of beautiful sanctuaries and a lot of beautiful things. But when it comes to the church itself, it's been very stagnant and not very effective. And it's reached a certain point and it stops. You'll see some surges and then it'll stop. You'll see some surges over here, and then it'll stop. But fortunately, what I've seen recently is there's a shift in this because I, I think the sparks of revival are starting to ignite in certain parts of our nation. I really do. And I think this is Scripture talking about end times happening. And I love it. I pray that's what's happening in this body. I pray that we would see a, an awakening in this place because what this means is we can say, like any individual in this room, including myself, we can say anything we want to about our hearts. I can tell you right now that I love Jesus and I can't wait to go home and read my entire Bible this afternoon. And I can't wait to go on that mission trip next month. And I can't wait. I love people so much. I'm going to serve here and there. I, I can say anything, 
that I love and follow Jesus, but it's our lives that is going to tell the true story. It's what happens in your life as you follow Christ. And when it comes to the, our church, our mission and our vision of reaching the nations that we talk about so extensively, what, what will tell the tale will be the fruit of that, that is seen in the coming years that comes out of our body. Will there be churches that have been planted? Will there be missionaries that are sent out? Will our children in those rooms back there get it and be awakened to the Great Commission and take it seriously and move out of this place and to see the, the nation's reach for the gospel? Will they go into their schools and not care what color person they play with? Well, where are we at today in this church? Because my heart today is what we would see what the church is about. Will there be missionaries sent out to, to, to understand? Will we partner with families in this place? Will you at home teach your children that Jesus loves the world? And it wouldn't just be a fairy tale that you just talk about sometimes. It will be shown in our vigilance as we plant churches and as we send missionaries, as we raise them up and send them out. It'll be seen in our commitment to raising up leaders in your connect groups to be sent out to our community to see real life change happen. Not relying on a church staff to do the work, but moving into your calling, into your anointing, anointing into your commitment to the church, not to a church staff, but to a church body and to a church leader who is the Lord. And we would move out and we would see the entire body working together. But there is something that is going to stop that in the tracks. And as I prayed this week and as I prayed and prayed and prayed, just asking God to give me direction. I just want to, I want to go where you want me to go. Every week I open this Bible and I say, God, I don't want to preach what I want to preach. Give me something. And the, the thing that kept coming to my heart was something that we talked about week one and week two. And I'm like, God, we've already talked about that. And he says, see it, say it again. I was like, okay. And so, not audibly, okay, you know, it says, the, the cause of spiritual immaturity is spiritual adultery. And I think we need to keep talking about this for a second. And, I, and, and the word that kept coming to my mind as he kept rolling that in my head, spiritual adultery causes spiritual immaturity. The thought that kept coming to my mind was, was Aaron as he was building the calf for the, for the Israelites to worship while Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. The word I got was idolatry. And I think about this, God's been just been peeling back the layers in my own heart, in my own life, on the idols that I may have created in my life to worship instead of him. And the problem is a lot of my idols look like God, but just have minor tweaks to make me more comfortable. Does that make sense? They have minor tweaks to make me more, my life more beneficial as I follow him, to make me look better, to make me, and I look and it's about me and it's not about him anymore. Then I began to look at the Bible as the heart of God as it, as it reaches out towards idolatry as I read page after page of Israel's continuous idolatry. Like everywhere they went, they were doing something stupid. And it, it reminds me of my life, you know, I, I was, it's crazy. Um, thank you, Thomas. So listen, <laughs> what I've learned is that I look at the Israelites and they go, to, they go to a foreign land. They start worshiping the idols of that land. They go here, they start building a calf. They go here, they just start, there's child sacrifice. There's, all, there's weird stuff that happens in their history, man. And I read about how the Israelites, after seeing God move in mighty ways to deliver them out of Egypt through miraculous signs and wonders, like the, the sea literally moved apart. There was, a, there was a tornado of fire that was basically leading them through the desert. There was manna that fell from heaven. There was all kinds of stuff that happened. And like, they're like still wanting to not follow God. And you, you, you say in here, God, give me a sign and I'll follow you. That's bull crap. Listen, I'm telling you right now, if the Israelites are a warning and an and a, and a example for who we are. That's it. They fought just like us. I'm telling you right now. So days later, days after Moses goes on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, just days later, the Israelites are melting down their earrings and their necklaces, and they're telling Aaron, make us an idol, make us an idol, make us an idol. Us an idol. So Aaron makes this calf, or this, this, this calf out of, out of gold of the earrings, and look what he does. Look what he does in this, in this moment. He said, 
this is your God that delivered you out of Egypt. I'm like, what? What? If I was in that crowd, I'd be like, what are you, what are you talking about? This is weird. It's getting, it's getting really weird, Aaron. Then it gets even weirder. They offer burnt sacrifices and fellowship offerings. They celebrated festivals and offered offerings that were reserved for who? God. They were offering idols, things that were reserved for God alone. They took what was holy and they perverted it. They, this is the picture of idolatry. They took something holy that was reserved for God and was offering it to a, a golden calf that they had made with their hands. And this is the picture of what idolatry looks like, taking the image of God and distorting it and changing it to fit ourselves, our own desires. And as I'm talking, I'm praying that God would give you a clear picture that if there's any idols in your life that you're, that you're worshiping. It might be work. It might be family. It might be things in your life that you don't even think about being idols, but they are that you're giving more attention to than you're giving to God, the things that you're worshiping over God. And idolatry is simply the result of a heart that is pursuing things outside of God that only God can fulfill. That's what idolatry is. It's the result of a heart that is pursuing things outside of God that only God can fulfill or provide. John Calvin said it this way, and I'm not saying I'm a Calvinist, so don't go that way. He says, the human heart is a perpetual factory for idols. The human heart is a perpetual factory for idols. Give us the chance and we'll replace God with any and every object, person, ideal, or dream. Give us a moment away from God and we'll, we'll set up anything as an idol. Anything. And, it, and an idol is anything that promises a life of security and joy apart from God. Right? Anything that says you can have joy and security over here that doesn't include God is an idol. That's an idol. And more times than not, idols aren't usually bad things. They're not usually bad things, but they're good things that have become the ultimate thing, right? And I want you to hear that is, is that things that you, that you believe can guarantee joy and security. And what I've seen, I've seen, um, I've seen the desire to get married become an idol. I've seen the desire to provide for your family because your dad didn't provide for his family it become an idol. I've seen, I've seen pornography become an idol. I've seen alcohol become an idol. I've seen your wife. I've seen kids become an idol. I've seen a church become an idol. I've seen the stage for a worship leader become an idol. I've seen possessions become, I can do a long list of idols in this room and so can you. But the problem isn't the money or the marriage or the object. The problem comes when we trust those things to satisfy our soul. When we trust those things and going after those things instead of the only one that can satisfy. And the great deception that happens is idolizing something, whether it's a, a person or, or a dream or a goal or money. If you idolize it, it usually keeps you from being able to enjoy it. You hear what I'm saying? If you're idolizing something, you can't possibly continuously enjoy it. Maybe at first you can because what happens is idols always make you sacrifice something to them. Right? The Israelites are sacrificing their earrings. And their go- make us an idol. Uh, listen, it all, they always make you sacrifice something to them. And the more you sacrifice to an idol, the more it demands from you. Ask any addict. It didn't start that way. It didn't start that way. Remember, we have to remember this, is that nothing in this entire world, no possession, no goals, no dreams, no aspirations outside of God can sustain the weight of your soul. Nothing can. Nothing in this world. And what happens in this is we try to follow God while worshiping an idol. And let me tell you, this is why the church is immature. We have a bunch of idol worshipers that come in and try to worship God at the same time they're worshiping an idol. And God's jealous. And I'm telling you right now, it, it, it strains our soul. It stunts our growth because we get stuck in this perpetual state of self-gratification. And we can't get out because we're not getting anything out of it. But we still think there's something here to get. And it just puts us in a stupor. We can't grow anywhere. 
It just puts us in this mindset of like, I don't even know who I am. I can't tell you how many times I've sat across from somebody. I don't know what God wants for me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in my life. I don't know my marriage. I, I don't know. I, I'm, does, am I even saved? You know, what? Where's it? it takes you away from the word. It takes you away from prayer. It takes you away from fellowship with God because God is jealous and he loves you and he wants you and he doesn't want there to be anything besides him in your life that you worship. Turn to Matthew 16. This is exactly why, Matthew, or this is what, exactly why Jesus said this in Matthew 16. I want, you, I want you to read this. Verses 21 to 27. So we just got a picture of Peter Jesus saying to Peter, blessed are you, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This is whenever he said, you know, you're the son of God, you're the savior of the world, all that stuff. I mean, one, two, four verses later, this is what's happening. Four verses later. This is, it sounds like my life. You ready? From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the church, teachers of the law. Do you know what he just described there? He just described the church. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So how do you go from blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, to Satan in four verses? You know what I mean? That's quick. That's quick turnaround, Peter. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Listen to that again. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is where the church is stuck sometimes. We don't have in mind the concerns of God. If we did, we'd be going a lot more. If we did, we'd be the, the lighthouses of our communities that we've been called to be. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever, whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the entire world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can, give, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Or for the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have what? Done. We will never take up our cross until we deny ourselves. And I love Jesus is so genius in the way he teaches. And I think they're, they're in this order for a specific purpose. You have to deny yourself first. Surrender to the Lord. Surrender it all to him. Bring it to the cross and lay it down. Surrender. Deny yourself. No more of what I want. My dreams have become your dreams, Lord. It's all yours. Then you take up your cross. You can't even take up your cross until you denied yourself. Why? Because if you haven't denied yourself, he knows you'll lay it down. And until you, until you take up your cross, you cannot follow him. And so we have a lot of Christians walking around saying, hey, I'm, I'm following Jesus who never denied their self, who are following Jesus as an addition to their life. And what I want to tell you this morning is deny means to refuse to give or grant something that's desired. What Jesus is saying, refuse to give or grant yourself something that you desire. Well, what? That doesn't make sense in my American mind. You know what I mean? I see it. I want to get it. I like that truck. I want this house. I want to do this. I want that gun, I want that boat, I want that camper over there, I want this, this, that, and that. You can, go, you can go on and on and on and on. That's just my desires. So what I'm saying is you can go on and on and on with this, but taking up a cross, guys, is inconvenient. There is not one cross you will ever take up in your life that will be convenient. You'll be like, oh, this cross, all right, let's take it, let's go, Lord. But never will that happen, ever. It will be like, God, give me the strength to pick up this cross because I don't want to. I don't want to follow you in this. That's what it means to follow Jesus. 
It's impossible to take up a cross, though, when we're more concerned about our comfort and our convenience than we are carrying out the will of the Father. The crosses we were meant to carry will remain on the ground until we deny ourselves. But until you pick up the cross that we were meant to bear in, the, in following him, it is impossible to follow Jesus or to find true fulfillment in life as a follower of Jesus because you'll always be searching for something else. And I'm telling you this morning, without denying yourself, you cannot follow Christ. And that's not me. That's scripture. So don't get mad at me. That's a scripture. It's hard. It's hard. Without denying yourself, you can't follow Christ. And this is why it's frustrating to hear those comments. Like I told you earlier, I shared with you earlier about professing Christians saying, I love Jesus and I follow Jesus. But if you have a sentence in your life, anywhere in your life where you say, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, and there's a but behind there, you don't follow Jesus. I'm just being honest. This is where it's at. And I hear a lot of people that love Jesus and follow Jesus. And I see the same people stuck in the patterns of idolatry and distance for God, distance from God for decades. They're in this battle where they're fighting themselves over and over and over again. They're in this struggle. They don't know why. They pray. They get on their knees. They talk to the pastor because you haven't denied yourself. You haven't given yourself completely over to Jesus. And I'm telling you this morning, he wants you to come to him with everything. And no one seems to care or talk about it in the church. And that's what breaks my heart. Because let me tell you, the rich young ruler, the reason Jesus said, go sell all you have and give it to me is because Jesus saw his heart and what had his heart. It was the money and the possessions. If it had been anything else, he'd have said, hey, go sell your camper or go sell your, uh, go take your boy off that baseball team that keeps you from me or whatever it takes, get it away from yourself so that you can see me more clearly. And we've created these, these cultural constructs in our faith in Jesus because in, we, we've, we've made church to be this safe place to come and experience Jesus on Sundays, and we've kind of belittled Jesus to an experience. I, I, did I get a goosebump today? Did, I mean, did I feel his presence in that place today? Did I, you know, I'm, and guess who we're, what is it about? It's about us. I want to I just feel your presence, Lord. Why? Why do you want to feel his presence? Why do you want to be in his presence? Is it about him and just knowing him and that's enough? Or is it about you feeling secure and safe in eternity? Guys, this is a slap in the face to Jesus because look what's happened. We make ourselves believe that we're coming here to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but it's hard to, to raise our hands in worship or to get on our faces before the Lord because he's good. You think about it in the Bible, man. The Bible, anytime somebody came in contact with God, guess what? Face down on the floor as though what? Dead. Listen, there, there is some reverence that needs to come over the body of Christ. It has to, because we can't come in this place and say, I'm worshiping, I'm worshiping Jesus, but I don't want to look dumb. I'm worshiping Jesus, but I, I can't, I'm too dignified to raise my hands and worship. I, but I raise my hands at the Georgia football games. But I, I'm, I'm coming to worship God, but there's a line. I'm following Jesus, but there's a line here. I'm, not, I'm boxing myself in. And in scripture, when people come in contact with God, Daniel came in contact with an angel and thought he was dying. He's like, I, don't, I can't look at you, Lord. And the angel says, don't call me Lord. You, you ain't seen the Lord yet. That's what it's about. So the question is, and needs to be asking your life is, who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Are we worshiping the Lord of lords and the king of kings? Or is it a perversion of the God of the Bible that we've rearranged to fit our comfort zones and acceptance of our needs? Listen, we have to understand that are we worshiping God? I mean, if you follow Jesus... I've said this only one. If you follow Jesus on your terms, it's not Jesus that you're following. It's, it's an idol. If you're not following Jesus on his terms, you're following an idol. 
And it's not Jesus, and, and that can't save you. And that's what happens in the, you look in scripture, whenever the Bible talks about Israel going through the, you know, the, 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 going through the wilderness and they were worshiping this, they were doing that, and they, they were worshiping idols and not the true God. And we have a tremendous choice to make in this room today, even as a follower of Christ. So I'm talking to all of us, including myself, follow God or follow the world. Revelation 3 tells us to, to pick one. Choose the world or choose God. Don't, don't pick the middle ground. Don't pick the fence. There's no reason to stand on the fence. Follow him or don't. Because if you're on the fence, you're not following him. There's no neutral ground and there's no other options. I'm sorry, according to scripture. And the greatest indicator of which one you've chosen to this point is found in which one you obey. Like Christian, if you say you follow Jesus, if you follow God, you obey God and the fruit of that becomes very visible in your life. Who in here has ever seen a Christian following Jesus and you're like, golly, that joke is awesome right? We've all seen that person that's like, I just want to be like him. I need to follow Jesus like him or her. I want to pray like her or, or read like her or him or, or preach like him or do this or that. I want to go on that mission trip like that person. I want to be able to do this gift or that gift. Listen, that's simply not true. That is not the person that you're looking at. That's the Holy Spirit coming out of, that, of, a, of an obedient follower. And that's where we have to be, to obey Jesus to the point where he comes out of our very body and the fruit of that is coming out into our lives so that we can be seen by the world as armor bearers of Jesus so that we can be the hands and feet of what he's called us to be because there will never be growth in the church. There will never be unity in the body until we destroy the idols that we have built up into our lives. They have to leave. And I'm not talking about a game here and I'm not talking about just a sermon point here. I'm getting real here. I'm trying to be real with each other in this room because it's, if we want to be an effective church, which I hope we all do, the idols have to leave because there's no room for an idol in the, in the life of a disciple. Jesus asked the disciples to do what whenever you followed them? Leave all they had. Leave your boat, your, your fishing nets. Leave the things you've invested in in your career. Just leave them at the dock and follow me. Or let me go sail. No, leave them and Come. There will never be an equipping that happens in our lives until Jesus is first in everything, in everything. Jesus has to be first in everything. We can look at the, back at the Old Testament. I'm going to try to go through this really quick because it's an awesome story. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you want to turn there. And we can see this in several places in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I want to read verses 1 through 3 real quick first. And then we'll, we'll go verse by verse. It says this. Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over the people of Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. It's time to listen. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them, that's a cool word, as they came up from Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belong to them. So a little background, the Amalekites had been the enemies of Israel going all the way back to the Exodus. Um, Israel was on its way out of Egypt to the promised land and they were alone, they were defenseless, had no army. They were in the wilderness with barely any food to eat to make it through the day and the Amalekites came in and tried to attack them. Okay, that's the background. God delivered them and God delivered them and God delivered them. For the next 400 years, the Amalekites would just keep coming. 400 years, Come after. Finally, in 1 Samuel 15, what happens, God says, you know what? I've had enough. That's it. Well, God says, I had enough. Better watch out. I'm telling you right now. Amalekites, they're gone. This was not a war of revenge. This was not a war of conquest for Israel to be rich, to make the Israelites famous. You know, God says, do not take anything that belongs to them. This is not about you, Israel. This is about me. This is about God being glorified. So don't touch a single thing. 
Skip up to verse 7. Uh, seven through nine. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Hivala to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he, he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared, that word spared right there is singular. So it was Saul's idea. He just took the army along with him. Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And so I want you to look at this. Now realize that, that, that sparing the king was not an act of mercy. He wasn't like, I'll let you live, bro. No, this was an act for Saul. Saul was going to put him in the dungeon and take him out of parties and look at the king that I destroyed. I got him. I, I'm the man. Look at him. He looks like he's stupid. You know, I, it, was, it was a thing that just puffed Saul up, made Saul become the man, right? He was, he was the center of attention. And I just told you a second ago that singular verse in there, that verb, <coughs> in, the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's spared as singular there. So basically, it was Saul's plan and idea, not his army. It wasn't and his army. But back then, what I want to see is that, that, that that's, what, that's the custom that would happen. And so let's read to verse 10 through 13. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. It's a bad day. Because he has turned away from him from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. How many of us cry out to the Lord whenever someone's struggling with sin? Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. That has escalated quickly, bros. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you, Samuel. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. A monument to himself. A monument to himself. So I'm thinking monuments in my life. What's a monument in my life? This beautiful... I can go a long way with that. Monuments in my life I have built for myself are things that I'm building for my own comfort and my desire to make the world look at me better. Whether it's a home, whether it's a car, whether it's children, whether it's an idol, it's for me, for the world can see me for who I really am but not really. Saul was proud of himself. He was, he was praying, said, look, I carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel, I did it. He was self-deceived. Pay attention to this. He was self-deceived. So Samuel, what did he do? He was a get right down to business kind of guy. So he skips all these pleasantries and says, well then, if you have performed the, like, the commandments of the Lord to destroy everything that belongs to the Amalekites, well, let's look in verse 14. Samuel says, but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the, the sheep and cattle to sacrifice the Lord's your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. So it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my idea. It was, it was the army's idea. I, I, was, I was under pressure, man. I had to do what they wanted me to do. They had swords and spears. You know, I got this crown. I can't do it. Uh, they, they, we, spared, we spared the best sheep and cattle and sacrificed them, though, Lord. We did most of the work. We did all the things that God wanted us to do. And, and In other words, Samuel, don't worry about it. We tithed on it. We gave our best to God. We, we did, we, it might not have been in his will, but we, we tithed on it. And we, we, did, we did what we thought was good, you know. Verse 16. Enough, Samuel said to the Lord. Let me tell you what the Lord told me last night. So I was like, tell me. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did, not, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the sight of the Lord? 
Why did you take for yourself what belonged to God? Verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul. Saul said, I, I went on a mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back the king of Agag. Listen, no, 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 Samuel. I, I did 98% of what God told me to. I did 98%. What's the big deal about the 2%? Who's ever heard this from their kids? I cleaned most of my room. Right? I did most of what you told me to do. I, I did most of it. I, I did most of what you said. But look how Samuel responds. And I'm going to tell you right now, church, and this, a lot of places won't preach this type of stuff. This is in the Bible. And this should freak you out because it freaks me out when he, when he says this in verse 22. He says, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, to listen, is better than the fat of rams. And so what that means is this. Samuel's like, is this what God wants, Saul? Does he want sacrifices? Is God just sitting up in heaven bored and poor that he needs you to offer sheep? Is that what he needs? And it gets worse. Look at verse 23. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. That's witchcraft. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Arrogance here can be translated into presumption or stubbornness as well. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Divination means sorcery or witchcraft, and arrogance here is stubbornness. In the original context of this scripture, in Hebrew, the word as is is not in there. So it originally would have read, so it read basically like rebellion is witchcraft. Arrogance is idolatry. Hear that. Are we... Are we disobeying the Lord in our lives in any way? It should scare us. We should, we should have the fear of the Lord come back into our lives so we can follow him with joy and security because we're looking to him. But as long as we have idols in our life that we've set up, there should be some sort of fear. And my heart today is that we, we would let this sink in. To take any part of what belongs to God and act like it belongs to you is just like worshiping the devil is what the scripture says. Even if you tithe on it. Even if you give your tithes on it, even if you religiously go to church every week, even if you're a really good person in any other, any other area of the week or the day, God doesn't want your religion. He doesn't want your moral behavior or your tithes or your offerings. He wants your all-out surrender and your heart. He deserves the first place in everything in our lives. And this is not just talking points in the church. He wants to be the one you're obeying, that you're living for, that you're seeking to glorify in every dimension of your life, the one you serve and respond to in every relationship. And this is the reality that we have to see is when we know the truth, when you know the truth, when you know the will of God as you pray and as you read, when you know what God has spoken and you still push back and disobey, it's idolatry and it's spiritual adultery and the church will never grow until it's removed from this building and from this body. And you say, but why? Oh, because our wills and our agendas and our goals and our dreams have taken the place of God. And the root of Saul's idolatry was not in a statue or a temple. It wasn't in a thing he was worshiping. It was found in not giving God the worship through obedience that God desires. And this leads us down a path of deception, as Romans 1 says. But guys, listen, we, just like Saul, can become blind to our own idolatry. And my question to you this morning, are there things in your life that you've become blind to in your life as, as idolatry? I, I keep giving and tithing keeps coming up in this sermon for some weird reason. But in our culture, that's the idol, is our money. I don't want to give because it's my money. I worked hard for this. 
I got a retirement plan. I'm going to Fiji next month. Man, that'd be awesome. I'm doing all this stuff, but it's my stuff. It's mine. I, listen, that's the way the church has been for a long time. And the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and bearing witness to the gospel. And I'm not just talking about being a good person or being a good Christian. I'm talking about declaring the praises of Jesus to the people around you, man. I'm talking about waking up to, the, to who God is. The church has, made, has to make its message credible because the church has been totally irrelevant to, the, to our culture. We have to become credible to the people by walking in what we claim we believe. And unity and maturity will never happen while there is open idolatry in the church. The only way to this point is to find complete satisfaction and contentment in Christ alone, no matter what that looks like. No matter if it means you've lost everything, I'm still okay because I got Jesus. I don't care what happens, it's okay. I got Jesus because Jesus is the perfect example of this contentment that I'm talking about. We repeatedly hear Jesus say phrases like this in John 4. You don't have to turn there, but he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Basically, that's what gives me nourishment. That's what pushes me forward is to obey Jesus. And you hear again in Psalms 40, verse 8, it says, I delight to do your will, oh my God, and your law is within my heart. No desire can exist for Jesus or existed for Jesus that was outside the will of God. His passion was to fulfill the desires of his Father. And so my question this morning is what is standing in the way of your next step? What is standing in the way of your maturity? Is it pride? Is it idolatry? Are you not willing to take that next step? Because I don't want to go out there to that next step table because I'm a man and I don't want people to think I'm serving the kids. I don't want to take, I don't want to take my next step because this is weird. I just, feel, I just feel uncomfortable. Listen, Jesus felt uncomfortable on the way to the cross too, I promise. It's important that we understand that Jesus has made a way for us to glorify him through the way that we live. There's a great story in Hosea where, where God called Hosea to marry a prostitute. It's weird. But what it was, was an example to Israel of what we do to God when we try to follow him and worship other idols. And what happened in that story is Hosea, Gomer would keep running away, keep running away, keep running away. She'd get gone, sold off into slavery. And what did Hosea do? He kept going after her. He kept pursuing her, kept going after her. And so one day Hosea comes up and his friend says, bro, I saw that, that prostitute wife of yours selling herself into slavery and now she's gone somewhere else. And Hosea was like, where is she at? I've got to find her. That's my wife. I'm going to fight for her. I got to go to her. And so what he did is he went to a foreign land and went to that slave market and bought her back. That's a romantic story, right? That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. We have, excuse my language, we've hoarded ourselves off to the world. And it's time for us to come back to Jesus and say, thank you, Lord, for loving me, even in my sin. And, and let that awe and that wonder push us into action and for us to lay down our idols and to come for him clean and ready to work and ready to move into the kingdom where he's called us to live. And so if you don't know Christ this morning, I pray that you would come to him this morning on your knees. I will be over here. I'll get on my knees and pray with you. And there's going to be some guys that are going to pray with you if you want. Do not leave here without being secure in your relationship with Jesus. Do not leave here today without being secure that your idols have been removed from your life. If you want to move and come to this altar and lay down some idols onto this floor and say, God, I repent. I lay them down. Give me strength to not pick them back up. Come do that. And for those of you who are looking at the time, that might be an idol. I'm serious. Let's pray. 
God, we love you. I thank you for who you are and what you've done. I thank you for your sacrifice, Father. I thank you for your son. I pray, Father, that you would just move in this place. God, I pray for the idols to crumble today, Lord. God, I pray for healing to be in this place. I pray for new hearts to be, to be created here today, God. I pray that you would, you would push someone today over the brink of salvation, Father, to a relationship with you that they never thought they could have. Father, I pray that people would be brave enough to lay down their idols, Father, so that the church can function the way that it was meant to function, and that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus in this place. Father, we love you. We praise you. And it's your name I pray. Amen.